Welcome to Dermalogs, a podcast made possible by a grant from AbbVie through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs, Season 4. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, full-time academic at Dalhousie University. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from doctors outside your centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of this series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from experts across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. This season, we've been mixing it up a little with a series of cross-specialty conversations. And today we're talking to medical oncology and melanoma expert, Dr. Robin McFarlane. I'm thrilled to have Robin join us. She's a colleague of mine. We went to medical school together here at Dalhousie. She currently works as an associate professor in the Division of Medical Oncology at Dalhousie. And her clinical interests are genitourinary and melanoma cancer. And she also co-chairs the biannual Atlantic Melanoma Meeting. Robin, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Carrie. I'm very happy to be here for my inaugural podcast recording session. <laughs> welcome. I'll try to make it as low pain as possible. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. So basically, some of the residents across the country, I think, get an opportunity to do medical oncology rotations, but I don't think that that's necessarily consistent. And I think you'll agree with me that a lot has changed in melanoma over the past number of years. And so I think this is an area that we definitely should discuss um, and make sure that everybody's kind of up to date on what's happening in your neck of the woods when it comes to melanoma. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that. We, I, I feel like before COVID, we used to have quite a few uh, dermatology residents rotate through our clinics. Um, and that really hasn't picked up again since. I'm not sure if there have been changes in the in the um program structure. But it's it's amazing to have Durham residents come through because we can tell them the things that we want them to know, but we can also learn a lot from them mm-hmm. so that when I'm sending a referral back to you for a rash, I can provide a little bit more a description <laughs> to it rather than just patient has rash. <laughs> <laughs> we do appreciate that. And I'm sure you also appreciate rather than C for melanoma, uh, a few yep. more details that allow <laughs> you to triage exactly when you need to see and what you need to do. Exactly. So What I was thinking we could chat about would be some of the new uh, melanoma treatment options, uh, some of some things hot off the presses, um, and then maybe eventually move on to some of the immunotherapy and cutaneous side effects that we might see. Does that sound like a good? Yep, that sounds great. Sweet. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted to talk about first is just some of the new things that have happened in melanoma. And so from my perspective, it's always been, you know, remove lesion, get pathology, oh, deep, you know, stage three, stage four melanoma, send to medical oncology, um, and follow those people up. But things have changed. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the stage two melanoma and what is kind of new compared to the same conversation we might have had a year ago. Yeah, I mean, taking even a a step further beyond that, everything has changed in melanoma in the last 10 years. Um, I was pretty privileged to start my practice just at the precipice when we started having effective therapies for more advanced stage uh, melanomas. And and what we tend to do in, in the course of drug development in all cancers, including melanomas, we, we find agents um, that work well in advanced settings, and then we sort of bring them further along in the trajectory of the disease. And so we moved into the adjuvant space uh, perhaps five years ago for stage three melanomas. Mm-hmm. But I think most of us know, based on the AJCC 8th edition, that our stage two melanomas actually perform worse than even our stage 3A melanomas, um, who would be eligible for adjuvant therapy. 
And so in the last couple of years, there have been a number of trials that have been done for high-risk stage 2 melanomas, namely stage 2B and 2C. Um, uh, one of them has read out in detail, and that is looking at adjuvant pembrolizumab, uh, which showed an improvement in relapse-free survival. Uh, and then we also have press release for adjuvant Nevo that has shown, obviously, um, a similar finding, um, mm -hmm. improving relapse-free survival. So that has become the new standard. Um, pembrolizumab, anyway, is Health Canada approved um, and um, available through an access program. Uh, so we want to see patients early on. Uh, we want to be able to um, treat them appropriately within an appropriate time frame. So again, the clock starts ticking for, for treating melanoma within three months from their definitive surgery. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I think one of the things that has changed is, and we've chatted about this before, Carrie, is um, instead of you know removing and then sending it for um, wide local excision and sentinel lymph node and then letting that surgeon refer on to medical oncology, I'm very happy to get those referrals early on, even before they've assessed the, the nodal basin, because then we can see them if they happen to be a high risk stage two. Um, so yeah. that's one thing that's changed. I think that's a huge thing. And, you know, to be fair, thank you for going right back because when we were medicine residents even and definitely medical school, you know, you got a metastatic melanoma diagnosis and that was a death sentence. There was just, there were no options. And so I think it's hugely exciting that there are things to offer and people are actually surviving for years yeah. um, with metastatic melanoma. I mean, I have a couple patients in my practice who've had deeper metastatic melanoma and they're coming on, you know, five, six years and it's just, incredible to see. I think it's really yeah, exciting. It, it is very, I mean, I'll be honest, when I, when I started my practice, I was, um, kind of voluntold to treat melanoma. <laughs> it wasn't where I had done my, my specialty fellowship training. And so I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do this. Um, but I'm, I'm actually, I've, in the last decade, I've, I've learned to really love it. Um, it's an incredibly exciting, um, academic space, mm -hmm. but it's very, very satisfying to manage patients with melanoma now. Um, as you mentioned, uh, if you were diagnosed with metastatic melanoma in, in 2010, the median survival was six months. And based on the latest update from the Ipinevo data in the metastatic setting, it's 6.5 years. That um, is and there's crazy. huge <laughs> ranges around that. Some people are, you know, getting these deep, durable responses. We don't ever call it cure to them because yeah. <laughs> you can't unhear that when you sort of whisper <laughs> the word cure in the context of a metastatic cancer. But some of these patients probably are being cured with immune therapy. So it is, it's a very exciting time to be treating these patients. A million percent. And I and I think, yes, for the residents across the country, uh, one of the things we have started doing here, at least in Halifax, is say, this is a deep enough melanoma that it's going on to further investigation. And so we take the opportunity to refer to you at that time just to get mm -hmm. the ball rolling. I know there are some centers that have melanoma clinics where everybody comes together. And I know that here we would love to have that if only we had space and resources, uh, which are slightly lacking. <laughs> Sadly, yes. yes. I'm, I'm hoping that this is not just a Nova Scotia specific phenomenon, but yeah, in the absence of space and resources. Um, but wouldn't it be lovely to have a dermatology, a surgical um, assessment, uh, a medical oncology assessment all, um, you know, within one setting um, so we can... Uh you know, yeah. speed people through the sort of cancer pathways. It would be huge. But it's our it's our pie in the sky for the future. Maybe Someday, we can Carrie. maybe we'll one day. Maybe one day we'll have one. Um so I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of adjuvant thought and the choice. And so if we send a patient, say I send a patient to you, uh they're stage two two B two C, um, what makes you decide? How does that patient 
get offered? Who do you decide? Does it matter? Are there other patient factors that are going to make it more appropriate for them to be offered adjuvant therapy? Yeah. I mean, so there, there absolutely are. These are not benign treatments that we're offering them. So for, for reference, adjuvant immune therapy is the only thing that's available right now for stage two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in stage three, if they happen to have a BRAF mutation, we have the option of targeted therapy using dibrafenib and trametinib, um, or we can offer them either single agent pembrolizumab or nivolumab. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is all within the Canadian landscape. For stage twos right now, all we have access to is is adjuvant pembrolizumab, but it's a year of therapy. So it's IV treatment, it's once every three weeks, and it's a year of treatment. So it's a big commitment from the kind of um, uh, administrative side of things mm. for patients to commit to blood work every three weeks, treatment every three weeks, and assessments um, at various intervals. Um, these are immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and the vast majority of, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but about 85% of people are going to do really well with them. They're going to have minimal or no toxicities. Right. 15% of them are going to have a very challenging time. And we can't predict who is going to struggle with side effects from these treatments and who is going to um, get by relatively unscathed. Okay. We do know that pre-existing autoimmune phenomenon can sometimes increase your risk of immune-mediated toxicities. That's not always a guarantee, though. Um, I can have patients who've had a previous history of fairly well-controlled colitis, and they go on therapy and they do okay. Mm-hmm. Um, on the reverse, I might have somebody who's never had autoimmunity and they end up with grade 4 colitis. So it's really important that we kind of um, get a, a global picture of these patients' um, general health, but also their functional status, uh, any competing causes of mortality, you know, I don't necessarily want to expose somebody to a year of adjuvant therapy for a moderate risk melanoma when they've had three hospitalizations for grade four heart failure in the last year, because right. that's what's going to end their life, not the melanoma. Right. Um, and so I think we, we, we do talk about that. We are very kind of patient driven in decision making. Mm-hmm. So we lay it all out for them. We talk about pros and cons. We go through different scenarios um, and then we let them take some time to make a decision mm-hmm. uh, and, and move forward because while most side effects from immune therapy can be reversed um, with um, intervention, some aren't. Some are mm-hmm. some are permanent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's really terrible to sort of have a healthy 50-year-old um, who had a stage 3A melanoma with really low volume disease in their lymph node end up uh, a type 1 diabetic because mm-hmm. of their adjuvant curative intent therapy. So, so we do think about all those things um, okay. and, and talk like a lot. And that's probably a good thing. Obviously, people have to have all the information before they decide. And it sounds like that might get a little bit more tricky if you have a couple of adjuvant options and how will you choose which? I guess Mm -hmm. I can't really ask you about that yet. If you're just in the press release, this is going to be available option for nivolumab. But do you have any sense of why you may choose one versus the other going forward? So, yeah, I mean, and again, because we we use... um, PD-1 inhibitors, PDL1 inhibitors, CTLA-4 inhibitors across a variety of different tumor types now. So they're very, you know, they're used often. Mm-hmm. So those of us on the Medonc side, we know these drugs in and out, um, and we know the sort of pros and cons and ups and downs. In the world of melanoma, when it comes to selecting a single agent PD-1 inhibitor in the sort of adjuvant space, they're the same. So <laughs> in terms of efficacy and toxicity profile, there's not a lot of difference. Okay. So historically, it's come down to what is most convenient for the patient, okay. what um, you know takes less chair time up in the systemic therapy infusion unit, if there are costs associated with them. So for reference, in, in, in stage threes, the trial using nivolumab was Q2 weekly. 
okay. uh, and the PEMRA was Q3. Right. Well, so we chose the Q3 option, most of us in Canada. Right. But for stage two, um, they wisely, um, for Nevo anyway, use a Q4 weekly dosing schedule. Mm -hmm. So if that becomes available, again, it's going to be hard to justify if we, you know, not using a Q4 weekly treatment option, if, if the data looks similar. So for currently for adjuvant for Pembro, are you doing Q3 or Q4? For Pembro, it's Q3. I feel like I should know that, but... <laughs> we, we do have Health Canada approval for a Q6 weekly dosing. That largely was born out of issues surrounding the COVID pandemic okay. and minimizing sort of risk to patients coming in for treatments. Right. Um, so in the metastatic space, a lot of us have adopted that Q6 weekly schedule. Um, I'm kind of a um, trials purist. And so far, I've, I've stuck with the Q3 weekly in the curative intent adjuvant space. Okay. Um, and I prefer to sort of follow the, the sort of primary data as opposed to making changes based on kind of pharmacokinetic information. Fair enough. I'm going to, this is a question that the residents had. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Asma Amir Ali, and I'm a resident at the University of Calgary. My question for Dr. McFarlane is that in the Canadian context, given the high cost of systemic therapy, such as Pembro or Ipinevo combinations, when are we starting these medications compared to the NCCN guideline recommendations? So, um, I mean, that's a, a, a really pragmatic and practical question. These are insanely expensive drugs and we are in a, you know, publicly funded healthcare system with mm -hmm. an aging population and increasing incidence of cancer across the board. Mm -hmm. um, so cost matters. I used to think when I started my practice, I was quite <laughs> smug about the fact that's not my problem. I follow the evidence. I'm going to give the right drug to the right patient. <laughs> you, you can't do that anymore. You have to be aware of the cost of the system. Yes. Um, having said that, we do follow the NCCN guidelines. Okay. We do not limit based on cost. We just figure out a way to, 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 to provide it. So Health Canada tends to follow FDA approvals very quickly. We're a little bit more rigid in terms of the specific indication. You can't just give Ipinevo to anyone. Mm -hmm. At present, it has to be for metastatic melanoma. So right. for stage four, yeah. you can't give adjuvant Ipinevo. Okay. You wouldn't do that in the States either. No. Um, so we, we're a little bit more rigid in terms of how we use them, but when we use them is very similar to the NCCN guidelines. Okay. Yeah. And I think those are two really valid points. One is the being stewards of the system, you know, uh, as the physician making the decision, I do think it is incumbent upon us to think about the cost to the system and how much resource we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this is an issue we have uh, using a lot of biologics in dermatology in a variety of spaces now. However, I will say I suspect uh, approval through Health Canada is more speedy when it comes to uh, life-limiting cancers uh, in some ways. So we're often waiting a really long time for approvals that have come through, you know, EU or the US and we're one or two years later. So I'm glad to hear that it's not the case for yeah. Um, yeah. cancer therapies. <laughs> we, we do get quick Health Canada approval. Now, then we have to go through a number of administrative steps to get provincial funding most companies tend to supply bridging drug while mm -hmm. we're waiting for those regulatory approvals. So you're right, we do get an expedited access to these agents, particularly if it's a new indication or if it's an unmet need. Now, the dermatology residents will be used to only being able to access uh, more targeted or advanced therapies in the context of patients that have failed something else. So, for example, they can't get a biologic for psoriasis until they failed or contraindicated things like methotrexate. But mm -hmm. I understand or 
please tell me if I'm wrong, when it comes to these immunotherapies for cancers, that's a that's a first line treatment. You don't have to fail traditional chemo that we know is not going to do anything for melanoma, right? I hope. Correct. <laughs> okay, yeah, good. no, absolutely correct. We <laughs> we never give. Well, I will say I cannot remember the last time I prescribed chemotherapy to a patient with with advanced melanoma. Okay. Um, we just, we, you know, the way we work is if drug A works, and then you compare new drug, so drug B to drug A then that becomes the new standard of care. Um, and that, um, you, you know, then the other options kind of fall further along in terms of your list of options. And, and I will say that Health Canada and, you know, CADETH, which is our, the sort of regulatory body that looks mm-hmm. about how we slot these into the options rather than just saying, okay, you have it, but where can you use it? because we do have some restrictions there, um, but they are not, um, they recognize that these are life um, extending and sometimes right. life-saving drugs. Um, okay. And so they're pretty pragmatic. Yeah. I that, that makes a lot of sense. And as much as psoriasis and atopic dermatitis and all these conditions are significantly impacting patients, it doesn't tend to impact their longevity. One thing I wanted to, I want to shift gears just a little bit, maybe to think about those patients who have stage three uh, melanoma, positive central lymph node, um, and just talking about ways to kind of uh, manage the the nodal disease. And so the residents had a question, uh, which is... Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Saima Ali, and I'm a fourth-year resident at the University of British Columbia. My question for Dr. McFarlane is, in patients with SLNB-positive stage 3 melanoma, NCCN guidelines suggest complete lymph node dissection versus nodal basin ultrasound surveillance. In real life, what is typically done? Is there a certain patient population that benefits from one versus the other? What factors do you consider when deciding which approach to take? So it's it's kind of both. It depends on who sees the patient first. Again, five years ago, patient would have a melanoma diagnosed. Then they would get referred to either surgical oncology or plastic surgery or head and neck surgeon, depending on the location of the primary lesion for their wide local excision and sentinel lymph node. And then again, based on that, um, if the positive sentinel lymph node uh, came back, they would get referred on to surgical oncology Mm -hmm. um, for completion um, nodal basin dissection. And then the MSLT2 trial came out um, that showed um, equivalence in oncologic outcomes for patients who were surveilled in their nodal basin. Mm -hmm. Again, keep in mind, MSLT2 were mostly for patients who did not have a head and neck. There were a smattering of head and neck um, melanomas in there, but mostly it was patients from the neck down. And so the nodal surveillance would have either either been inguinal or axillary. Mm -hmm. And so the ultrasound surveillance... Uh, and then only going to surgery if something came up on those ultrasounds um, was equivalent in terms of melanoma-specific survival. And so you're saving a lot of people a pretty morbid surgery mm-hmm. who may not need it um, in terms of impacting their longevity. But again, there's always, uh, you know, I, <laughs> this might be a bit of an inflammatory statement, but there's, you know, <laughs> we, favorite. on medical, <laughs> for medical oncology, you get a new trial, you're like, I want that drug yesterday. We're, like there's buy-in fairly quickly if right. the data is good. Right. Um, but tra- changing surgical practice often takes a little bit more time. <laughs> People <laughs> like what they do and they, they have success with what they have done. And so it took a while, I think universally, not just in Canada, but it right. took a while for that surgical practice to change even mm-hmm. after MSLT2 came out, but it has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I obviously I can't speak to other areas, but, but certainly in Canada, it is unusual for somebody to have a subclinical sentinel lymph node positive, then proceed on to axillary or inguinal completion dissection. Right. 
Um, now, the, the, if you have a clinically apparent lymph node, or if you have a lymph node that is hot on a PET scan or, or enlarged on a CT scan, that's different. They right. probably should yeah. have a more extensive surgery because the likelihood that you're going to have microscopic disease in, in further nodes is that much higher if there's right. a clinically apparent node. Yeah. But for a microscopic subclinical sentinel lymph node positive, almost all patients now are being monitored as per the MSLT2, or they should be. Right. Um, <laughs> we and that, that's exactly. Yeah, okay. we hope they are. So yeah, I've noticed that actually even locally that many patients who've had a sentinel lymph node are getting um, serial ultrasounds instead of having, or or they're already having PET scans or whatever. And so they're not actually getting those lymph node dissections, which is, which is great for them, mm-hmm. to your point. Yeah. yeah. I do want to come back. I don't want to forget to come back and talk a little bit about ongoing surveillance um, after treatment, but I do want to just talk a little bit before we go to that about some of the other options, just since we sort of talk about surgeons. um, I know at least in our center, and I suspect other places in Canada, there is a role or there's a there's been a role for IL-2 injection. Do you could you maybe speak to that? um, And where you think it fits? Yeah, I mean, we we're pretty fortunate, we do have two surgical colleagues, surgical oncology uh, colleagues who um, were very early ad- adapters um, of intralesional injections. There have been uh, trials looking at predominantly IL-2, which is Health Canada approved and, and funded across the country. Um, they looked at TVEC as well. That does not have Health Canada approval. Um, and there's some early data with other sort of agents being being used. But but by far and away, IL-2 is the most common intralesional um, agent that's used. Um, so I, I'm kind of of two minds when it comes to IL-2. I think it can be a very useful um, um, option for patients who have uh, limb limited disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But really, if you've got somebody who's got six different in-transit lesions or subcutaneous lesions within an arm or a leg, that still is, in my mind, a very high risk for metastatic potential. So a lot of those times, they're also getting referred on to medical oncology, and we kind of co-manage with our surgical colleagues while they're getting internally. Because again, as soon as you get something outside of that limb, you you probably should be exploring systemic therapy. And there, what we don't know is whether or not we should be doing systemic therapy if it's just in the limb and they're responding to intralesional injection. So that we don't know. And that's an area that I think is kind of ripe for um, some, some trials to get some, some guidance for that. But I think the key is if you have a center where you have access to, um, you know, skilled surgeons or dermatologists or, you know, even medics, whoever is doing these um, intralesional injections, you really want to be collaborative. You want to make sure that sort of everybody's in the loop um, and that there's a very low threshold to explore systemic therapy because we have such effective systemic therapies. We don't want to miss our window. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's really important, which is the other reason I try to always make sure that you guys are involved early on, because that's the piece that's, you know, going to definitely come up from medical oncology, the, the systemic piece, the immunotherapy, what are the options? And so I think that's really uh, important. Okay, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the melanoma patient that does not have a skin primary, which is a challenge. I have many patients who have either unknown primary that present with metastatic melanoma to you guys, and then they come for skin surveillance, um, or they have, say, like, deep vulvar, GI, lung, mm-hmm. ocular melanoma. Um, I just follow these people 
regularly every, you know, six to 12 months, depending on how many pigmented lesions they have. But are you, am I doing the right thing? Or are you aware of any um, guidelines that would indicate the best way to sort of monitor these non-cutaneous primary melanomas? Because they're, they're really hard as a dermatologist because I can't see past the skin. (laughs) Yeah. Help. Um, so yeah, I think these are the, the patients who confound all of us um, across <laughs> specialties. Um, I would probably separate the, the patients that you sort of mentioned uh, into two sort of broad groups. Mm-hmm. The patients who have documented mucosal primaries or okay. documented um, ocular primaries. From that perspective, you know, they may not need as much in the way of cutaneous surveillance. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I, I am not aware of any specific evidence-based okay. guidelines. There may be consensus statements out there, but I don't believe that there are any evidence-based guidelines. Um, so, you know, if you, if you have an ocular melanoma, if you have a mucosal melanoma, I don't always send to dermatology for, um, you know, skin surveillance in the mm-hmm. absence of a worrisome cutaneous lesion. Or, you know, again, we're still going to use the same drugs to treat those patients. So they could still run into the same sort of cutaneous toxicity. So in mm-hmm. that regard, obviously, we get you guys involved. The patients, though, who don't have an obvious primary, who have like nodal disease as their first presentation or who have metastatic disease and there doesn't appear to be an ocular lesion, a mucosal lesion or a cutaneous lesions. In that scenario, I always get concerned about one of two phenomenon. One is you can actually get like what's called a burnt out primary. Mm -hmm. So somebody who had you know, an early melanoma, we know that there is an inherent immune surveillance that goes on with certain types of malignancies, most commonly with melanoma and kidney cancer. And so spontaneous regression of right. disease is is a phenomenon that we have seen and it is reported. So it's possible that they had a melanoma that, you know, their own inherent immune surveillance took care of, but not adequately enough not to, to seed um, uh, metastases. Um, so that's, that happens mm-hmm. in theory. The other thing that happens probably more often in practice is, you know, they see, you know, a primary care provider and they're like, oh, I'm a little bit worried about that. Oh, I'll just liquid nitrogen that off or I'll I'll cut that off and it doesn't get sent for path or it's treated um, because, you know, melanomas, you know, you guys probably know this far better than I do, is really sneaky. Um, And even to a skilled eye, it doesn't always look the way it's supposed to look in a textbook. And so something that's amylanocytic that doesn't look particularly, you know, scary from a melanoma perspective, you know, I would hate to be a a family doctor trying to adjudicate what (laughs) can you burn off in an office versus what needs to be sent for pathology. So I think that might happen as well. So if I don't know where the primary lesion is, I assume it's skin based. And then I do want dermatology involved because I think it's very helpful for ongoing skin surveillance. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and that to the same extent, you know, if you if I remove a, a pigmented lesion that is of concern, and there's regression, I tend to sort of upgrade that in my mind, because you then you say, well, I don't really know what it looked like before. And mm-hmm. did the immune surveillance take take part of the depth? And so, you know, we sort of tend to treat it up a little bit. Um, but to your point, melanoma, very sneaky. You know, I think everybody that's been in practice for a number of years in dermatology will be able to tell you about the the thin melanoma that they had in 2014 and then in 2023, well, or what happened to one of my patients in 2022, came back with a big lump on the arm you know, about 10 centimeters up and I did an FNA and lo and behold, unfortunately, melanoma, but 
I went back and looked and the path was super thin. Everything was done right. um, And that was just caught in um, this gentleman that knew, you know, well, this is kind of weird. And so came to see me sooner than his usual follow-up appointment. But um, I always am nervous that that's happening out there or that I miss an amelanotic lesion. Um, And I think we all lose sleep at night worrying about melanomas that we've missed. Um, So residents, Welcome to the team. Uh, it's going to happen <laughs> to all of you. And you're going to also cut something off that you're going to go to yourself. This is a basal cell carcinoma and the pathology is going to come back and it's going to be a deep melanoma and your stomach's going to drop. But I will tell you what one of my colleagues told me, which is, well, at least you cut it off and now you can do the right thing. Um, <laughs> and I and that lady fortunately is still alive. Thank goodness. Ten years <laughs> later. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the cutaneous side effects of immunotherapy, because I do want to be uh, cognizant of your time. So let's talk a little bit about um, when you, so obviously we've sort of just alluded to this a little bit, um, but when you see a patient, you're going to start them on immunotherapy, recognizing that pretty much all of these have some cutaneous side effects. What do you tend to counsel them about you know, you're sending them out, what are they looking for? What are you telling them about the skin stuff? Or you just kind of wait till they, I doubt you wait till they come back no. and show you a crazy rash, but like, what do you tell them? We try to tell them as much as we can. So with immune therapy, um, you know, cutaneous toxicities are, are very, very common. Happily, most of them are quite low grade, quite mm-hmm. mild. And, uh, you know, we can usually manage them. Uh, but it's not infrequent that we do see more severe immune mediated um, skin based toxicities. But targeted therapies can also cause pretty um, raging skin toxicities as well. So for sticking with the immune therapy things, you know, pruritus without rash is probably the most common side effect that patients on either single agent PD-1 or combination PD-1 CTLA-4 inhibitor experience. Mm -hmm. It's very, very common. Mm -hmm. Um, So I tell people all the time, you will, you know, this can range all the way up to itch without rash to, you know, a head to toe rash involving, you know, your mucosal lining. So Mm -hmm. um, we, I, educate people, you tell them, you know, when I'm telling people about when I'm starting them on a therapy, we go through everything. And and there's so much to tell people that they're overwhelmed. So at the end of the day, after I completely overwhelm them with information, I say, look, all you need to do is call me if anything changes. Okay. If you get a hangnail, I want to know about it. (laughs) And unfortunately, that means... You must be called all the time. Exactly. Okay. This, so my my long suffering nursing colleague has to deal with all of these literal phone calls saying, "Well, I you know I have a hangnail or I have a dime sized rash and I don't know what to do about it." So we do counsel our patients to have a very low threshold for calling because it's much easier for us to manage any toxicity, including mm-hmm. cutaneous based toxicities, early on. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is minimally impactful to the patient. Uh, we just sort of give general uh, kind of motherhood statements. Make mm-hmm. sure you're using, you know, thick emollient creams. Make sure you're well moisturized with, you know, minimal perfumes and dyes. Um, if it is not a huge surface area, you can use over-the-counter, you know, steroid voice creams. If it, mm-hmm. if it's not that bad, we can give you something a bit stronger. We use um, cetirizine and Benadryl. And then ah. if that's not sufficient, <laughs> <Okay>. uh-oh, <laughs> I said something wrong. Come back to that in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> if that's not sufficient... 
then I'm tapped out. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Carrie, help me. So I'll I'll send them on at that point. Or sometimes if, you know, it seems like up front a fairly significant, you know, and we kind of go by percentage of body, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's more than 50%, I don't care if it's, if it's a mild, mildly symptomatic, I'm nervous about that. So I'm probably going to send to dermatology at that point. Um, We also have a pretty low threshold for starting systemic therapies, even for cutaneous. We don't usually have to use the high dose, like a milligram per kilogram is the standard recommendation for most immune mediated toxicities. Mm -hmm. Um, for, uh, for, um, a skin, you can usually get away with, you know, 20 milligrams, uh, 25 milligrams and, and a quick taper in, in combination with all the topicals. Okay. Um, but, but so we, we try those things, um, and usually we can settle things down. Um, and then if not, we, we call in for help. Okay. That, and yeah. that makes sense. The reason I said, uh, is because Benadryl, um, only at night because it helps them sleep if the itch is bothering them. <laughs> I feel like you know the voice of of Lori Connors is coming over my shoulder, and she recorded a podcast with me earlier in the year, and it was like basically like, never use Benadryl. And the main reason is just very sedating and short acting. So we tend to use a fair amount of cetirizine in the morning and at night, so double dosing them. But uh, we can talk about that offline. Um, yeah, no, fair <laughs> enough. I will say, like, I will say, we it's cetirizine in the morning, Benadryl at night, because because of the sedating effect. You're not the only wrongly. one. Don't feel bad. <laughs> You're not the only group that yeah, does that. Good, good. Um, so, okay, so th- this is this speaks to one of the questions that the residents had. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Sarah Asukate. I'm a fellow at University of Toronto. My question is that we've seen a few patients with Steven Johnson syndrome secondary to systemic therapies for melanoma, whether anti-CTLA-4 or anti-PD-1 antibody therapies. How commonly has this been recorded and what is the next option for patients once they get a severe adverse reaction? Thank you. And so the question for you is not with respect to how to manage the severe reaction. It's what do you do with After. that melanoma patient. Yeah. I, I'm sure you interpret it that way, but just to be, just to be clear, yeah. they weren't asking how to manage, to, to manage their, their, but you probably could, I'm sure you could. <laughs> I'm not sure. But, um, so it, this is, so I, I will, I will say, I don't think that the really, really severe skin toxicities are that common. They are, they definitely Agreed. happen. They do. Agreed. Um, but they're, they're not, you know, 30% of the time, they're not even 10 or 5% of the time. They're rare. That's mm-hmm. severe. They do happen. We have to be mindful of them. We have to, you know, treat them early and aggressively. So I think, you know, we don't want to pretend that they don't happen, but I don't think we should be frightened that everybody who goes on these drugs is, is at, you know, significant risk right. for that degree of toxicity. If somebody's had that type of potentially life-threatening side effect, whether it is, you know, an SJS phenomenon, whether it's, you know, grade four colitis or hepatitis or myocarditis, we always kind of sit down with our patients and say, okay, we have options. Our options are we rechallenge you. Now, again, the NCCN guidelines would not suggest that we rechallenge after grade four toxicities. Right. Um, but the reality is if you are dying of your melanoma, and that's a certainty, then the potential reflaring of a toxicity, um, which may shorten your life, and it may certainly impact the quality of life that you have. But you're in a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, for patients who are BRAF wild type, who don't have other good options, 
we sometimes will rechallenge even in the face of very severe toxicities if the patient is motivated and has a full understanding of the inherent risks with it because it is very risky. Mm-hmm. What we have gotten a little bit more comfortable doing in more recent years, because we used to say you can't be on any steroids if you're going to have immune therapy. Yes, yeah. We now will tolerate a bit of steroid on board. So not infrequently, I've got somebody who's had not uh, you know, not an SJS picture, but a significant uh, cutaneous toxicity. It settles down. You put them on some steroids. They they taper down, but we never get them off steroids without it flaring up again. And so yeah. I'll leave them on 10 milligrams of prednisone and continue on with immune therapy, often with good oncologic outcomes and better um, um, tolerability of the drug. Yes. So we, we know a bit of background steroid we can use. There's also some new data is coming out looking at some of the and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to forget the name, but the vetalizumab, some of the other targeted treatments that we sometimes use. So for example, we often use infliximab if somebody has lots of colitis mm-hmm. that's not settling with steroids. Um, but there are other options that are potentially slightly less immune suppressive that we could potentially give in concert with our immune therapy. I have a handful of patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma who are transplant patients and they're like, I will not risk my, my renal graft. So I'm not coming off my immune suppression, but I still want to be treated. So we, we work with the nephrology team. We sort of minimize the side of the immune suppressive regimen and then we kind of rechallenge them or, or continue on with it. So I think in those scenarios, kind of circling back to your original question, you know, if you don't have another option, if you have another option that's not immune therapy, then explore that. But if you don't have another option, which a lot of these patients uh, with melanoma, they they simply don't have other options, um, then getting creative and trying to safely rechallenge is, I think, a reasonable approach as long as the patient is aware. Yeah. So, and you're really talking to that, you know, um, shared decision-making, risk benefit detailing. And I think um, that, makes a lot of sense. And you kind of answered my my next question, which was just, you know, do steroids impact the efficacy of the treatments that you're using? And if, you know, I've you and I have talked about a couple of patients here recently, you know, they're not responding to steroid. Is it okay for me to give them mycophenolate mofetil? Could I give them IVIG? Can I give them rituximab? And, mm-hmm. and you know, at a very high level, I think your answer has always been, well, you know, risk benefit, and and kind of you got to treat the most pressing thing mm-hmm. in the short term and then reassess in the longer term. But so exactly. it, it sounds like there's maybe not glaring evidence to suggest that using these medications um, will really negatively impact the the benefit that you're getting from the the targeted or immuno or, or is there? I, th- or just I, I would say there's black box. there's it it is a bit of a black box. We don't know, but we are we're getting sort of more emerging real world anecdotal experiencing saying experiences saying, look, I tried this on this patient and they still had a good response to treatment. So the next time you encounter a similar scenario, you've got a little bit more confidence saying that it's not as you're not in that sort of nihilistic space that we were at the beginning thinking any steroids, any immune suppression and we can't use these drugs. So I think this is like everything, an evolving landscape. And the more we use these drugs, the longer we use them, the more we sort of have, um, you know, centers of excellence, the more I think real world evidence is very helpful in in this sort Mm -hmm. of aspect. Um, And we do have good databases that we're we're starting to be able to sort of plumb to ask questions. Um, I think, you know, I think pragmatism is important. <laughs> and, and if the patient is super miserable with a side effect, you have to focus on that right now. Totally. And then you sort of regroup. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And I mean, you know, if, I think if we all think back to ourselves, when we were medical students or residents, there was probably a little bit less of the pragmatic thought, but it does mm-hmm. really become important over time. 
Um, and I was about to ask you if database and real world evidence does exist. And it sounds like, in fact, it does and is being added to regularly. So that also, you know, helps. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a little plug in for the Canadian Melanoma Research Network. Um, Scott Ernst is a medical oncologist in London, Ontario, and, and that's this is kind of his baby. Um, but he's got um, pretty much all of the centers across the country are... Um, I, there are a few exceptions, but most centers across the country are, are uh, involved in that um, and are sort of inputting patient data. So what, you know, it's the, it's the highest quality of kind of retrospective evidence that we can get, which is prospectively um, um, uh, accessed information um, that you sort of ask questions of retrospectively. Amazing. So as we start using more and more adjuvant, PEMBRO, et cetera, in the um, earlier stage melanoma, uh, it probably becomes pretty overwhelming for medical oncology to keep up with these patients for a number of years. And so recognizing that dermatologists tend to follow melanomas for five years plus, what type of things like from an um, imaging or diagnostic mm -hmm. perspective should be done after that sort of first year of Pembro? Like, are there things that we yeah. can do? Um, yeah. So, the, uh, yeah, the, that's an excellent question. It's something that, you know, we've chatted about um, previously, Carrie, and and we, we do struggle with this because um, the stage two melanomas, the stage three melanomas, these aren't patients that used to be seen frequently in medical oncology, and they certainly didn't used to be followed to the extent that they are now. So mm. our patient volumes have increased um, exponentially. And it's one thing for, for somebody to come in and get treatment once every three weeks for a year if everything goes well, but the patient who have side effect and toxicities that require very hands-on, real-time management, um, the workload has become um, significant. Um, mm -hmm. That's a a whole other discussion. In terms of what we do after, so they've they've been diagnosed with their high-risk melanoma, they get their year of adjuvant therapy. We don't really know what to do after them. NCCN has guidelines, um, but that, you know, that I think we probably differ quite a bit um, in the Canadian landscape because NCCN is, none of them are evidence-based, I will say. Right. Um, these are all sort of expert consensus statements. Um, and that, you know, in the American landscape, it's a bit more of a litigious sort of outlook. So they scan and scan and scan to make sure that they don't miss anything. And that's not feasible in, in the Canadian um, uh, landscape. Yeah. So... Right now, we don't have a Canadian cons consensus statement. The CCTG, so the Canadian can um, Cancer Trials Group, is working on that. Okay. Um, and hopefully, we'll have one soon. But what, what I try to do is be consistent with each patient. I have another colleague who manages patients with melanoma. She's quite consistent. So we try to do institutionally anything, something mm -hmm. that's, that's reasonable. So I tend to follow them for their year on treatment. And then I follow them for another year to appreciate any late emerging toxicities from their treatment and to manage them. But also because we know that that's the highest risk period, the right. first and second years after their melanoma diagnosis. So I follow them with PET scans every six months or more often if they have um, uh, toxicities. And that's highly variable across Canada. Okay. Um, some people never use a PET scan. They use CT scans. After two years, if they haven't had any evidence of recurrence, um, we graduate them from the cancer center. And if they're fortunate enough to have a family doctor, we ask their family doctor to do a CT scan once a year mm -hmm. up to year five. Okay. So if we have 
motivated and collegial colleagues who are are wanting to be involved in that aspect of follow up and and they're seeing i think it's a it you know going back to what we mentioned earlier this melanoma clinic this multidisciplinary approach there's real value i think in having your derm colleagues seeing these patients potentially ordering those scans knowing that you know you pick up the phone and you call me and i get them right back in if something shows on the scan rather yeah. than you know a family doctor who may or may not remember because you know that's not their 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 wheel host or their area of expertise. Right. They might not have a family doctor. Um, so I think it keeps them kind of still um, uh, somewhat in the system. Yes, and yeah. it certainly allows sort of repatriation to be a bit easier. Yeah. And I mean, I think in the context where they do have a derm that's able to do that, it's great because you know, per our guidelines, we follow them, like I said, for mm-hmm. five years. And uh, early on, I'll see patients more frequently as well due to the increased risk period. And they're often having cutaneous side effects. But, you know, even at that couple year mark, if they're if they don't have a ton of pigmented lesions, I still see them once a year uh, for at least five. And then um, many patients prefer to just do a once a year after that. And I um, always say yes, because yeah. when someone's had a deep melanoma, you know, you never say never. And I just always think to myself, "Ah, once a year, they come and see me, it's not a big deal. And then they don't have to go through the rigmarole of access if something pops up. Mm -hmm. Robin, do you think there's anything that we haven't talked about for melanoma that if you just knowing that you can have a voice to all the well, all the ones that listen, but the Canadian dermatology (laughs) residents, like, is there something you're like, man, I just wish they knew this? Or do you think we we covered it? You know, I, I think you probably have covered most of it. I will say I have the sometimes unfortunate position of meeting patients who have come in, you know, saying, well, I, you know, I went to my family doctor and, you know, they said they weren't worried about it. Um, then I, you know, took, you know, I, I, or maybe it was a dermatologist. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. it's less, less frequently these stories come from, from people who are followed by dermatology. Um, but I think, from my perspective, you know, seeing what can happen with melanoma when it is either um, when it presents late um, or if it's, you know, metastatic at, at the, at, from the very beginning, um, just if you have, if you're worried at all, cut it out. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I tell most of the family medicine residents that come through. I think this is probably less relevant for, for dermatology residents because you guys are trained to sort of um, appreciate what, what you need to be worried about and, and whatnot. But generally speaking, if, if the patient is worried about it, moreover, you know, yeah. take what they're saying into consideration, even if it looks really, you know, um, kind of benign in front of you, if they're giving this history of, of change, uh, take it out. Um, and even if it's nothing, you've, you know, established good trust with the patient that you're listening to them and yeah, and you'll, you won't regret it. I think that's a really good point. And I do think that there's times where a patient will say, this has changed and I'll go, okay, it looks okay, but, um, but, but I'll take it out. And then my general rule of thumb is if I look at for something, if I look at something for more than two seconds in my dermatoscope, it's coming off. Um, and that sounds like a really short period of time, but you know, it, it just, it's, if it, if I look at it and I look at it again, it's, it's coming off. Um, and I don't think, you know, I've never had a patient that I go back and say, oh yeah, it wasn't skin cancer. Get mad at me for removing it. Um, certainly I suspect the other situation happens. Now those people probably don't come back to me because they don't trust me, but they've sought out some other, you know, care somewhere else. And so I think that if a patient is worried or their family member's worried and they tell you it's changed, it only takes a couple minutes to, to take it out. So I couldn't agree more. Yep. So listen, thank you so much. I wanted to thank you for your time. I think we covered a lot of great information uh, that will be excellent for the residents to hear. And so thank you for joining me. And I look forward to our future 
interdisciplinary melanoma clinic in in Halifax. <laughs> yeah, no, Carrie, thank you so much. I'm. It was a, a pleasure to do this, and and thanks for having me. And uh, I'll echo your statement. I think that we're gonna make some changes to the benefit of our patients for for sure. A million percent. Thanks again. Thanks. Robin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please give us a rating and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. If you want to hear more great CDA podcasts, please check out JCMS Author Interviews. Every month, Dr. Kirk Barber talks with authors from his pick of articles in the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy.